Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with Adam Gray. We're going to have a chat about his origin story. Looking forward to that, a fellow podcaster. But first, thanks, sponsors, Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, as well as CompC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Hugs and Scott Auctions, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck. So, Adam, welcome to the show. I'm not going to hold the fact that you are mainly passionate about basketball cards, whereas I uh, play the field <laughs> against you because I think it's great to be intensely passionate about uh, one of the sports. In fact, basketball is my my favorite sport to watch in person. So, welcome, Adam Gray, Basketball Card Podcast. Tell us some of your origin story of how you got uh, where you are right now. I hope you don't hold it against me because you're partly to blame for me being so into it. Uh, well, I, mean, I, I had to cover all the sports, which was a labor of love, but it was a lot of work. But basketball, like I said, is the one I enjoyed watching in person the most. Basketball cards have, have been really the one significant hobby of my life. My original set that I put together was 1990 hoops. I remember when series one came out. I remember when series two came out. I remember looking in the Beckett magazine at uh, David Robinson's all-star rookie card, wondering why it wasn't actually his rookie card, trying to figure out what the 138 1989 hoops card was. I it, it really is. It's the one significant hobby of my life. And I can walk you through from 1990 to today and tell you where I was in terms of the hobby. And I'd love to do that. But I know your show's only 15 minutes. So oh, I, what about the, but did you take any breaks? Were you were you straight through from 1990 or did you take a break for some period of time? And if so, how do you get back into it? The only break that I took was actually um, I, I served a mission for my church, an LDS mission from 2002 to 2004. But other than that, I'm one of the, the strangest people that you've ever known who's just been a basketball card guy for the last 30 years. First, I want to congr- uh, not congratulate you. I think that's a big commitment. And are you saying that commitment involves uh, going another, to another country, but also not being able to touch base with the hobby that you love? Yeah. That's so yeah, I was, in, I was in England and I was pretty focused on, on the work there. My mom actually still sent me packs of cards. And I think I even got a few, I think I even got a few of your magazines along the way, but I wasn't, this was 2002, 2004. It just wasn't, it wasn't like today. It wasn't as easy to follow the sport or to watch videos and those types well, of things. I, but you've mentioned in your podcast that you go through some of the old uh, back issues. It seems to me you've covered some back issues in your podcast that are in that early 2000s era where you're looking at the readers and things like that. And was that because you didn't see it at the time or because you remembered at the time and you're digging back into your archives? What I did actually is about maybe six to nine months ago, I was interested in learning what was being talked about at the time for some of these um, episodes or some of these issues that I didn't buy at the time, either because I was in England or because I just didn't buy them. And I think that some of those, I think some of those have some really interesting tidbits that we can really learn from today. And as you mentioned, I, on each one of my episodes, I highlight for five or 10 minutes, some of the things that I think are really interesting that we can pull from those issues now, but I didn't really go back looking for issues that I didn't see at the time. I went back to find really just any nuggets of of interesting information from probably like 1995 through around 2002, 2003. I've listened to some of them. I enjoy your podcast. And I think that when you're repeating things that were back in the magazine from 25 years ago, I I believe they were fully accurate at the time of printing. But wow, the passage of time has really... uh, the values are completely turned upside down. And yet the pack odds and some of the things that you can see that we we published back in the day, I hope that's helpful for you. And for Oh my goodness, Jim, I would tell you, there's things like, there's things like you mentioned, pack odds and initial collector values that are so um, rich with 
it's just, it's, it's hard to imagine in 2020 that we believed some of the things that we believed, but it's also good to look back and to say, see, that is really what we believe. I'll give you an example. As I look back at the 1997 and 1998 Becketts, one thing that's really clear to me is that of all the parallel cards that you talked about, the essential credentials were all, were number one for a long time. And now these days, that's still a set that's still beloved, but I don't think, I don't think as many people recognize today how beloved it was back 23 years ago. We didn't see them that much. Are, are you saying that the relative scarcities and the relative values are reasonably similar and intact from back then? Or have there been some flip-flops? Because oh. most of it was uh, the pricing, statute of limitations, but our pricing, especially from the early secondary market, was a lot more based on supply than based on demand because it was too early to see that, w- that the early was based on what was selling and that most what, what p- things were selling for was more related to the perception of the supply. But now demand for certain of the more beautiful of those inserts and parallels has just just gone through the roof. Yeah, I think you're asking such a, you're asking such a great question. I'll give you an example, another example. The I looked back through about 10 different Becketts to see how the original Precious Metal Gems, Michael Jordan, compared to the Precious Metal Gems Championship, Michael Jordan. And the reason that I'm doing that, if I'm being just totally honest, is that I own the, the Jordan PMG Championship. And so I like to be able to razz my friends, like one of your previous guests, Chris McGill, who has the PMG Red, and say, hey, just so you know, mine was worth more back in the day. And per your magazine, it was. But in terms of how they've moved, they have flip-flopped, they have switched, and now the PMG Red is considered, and has been for a long time, the more valuable card, even though it's even though there's almost twice the supply. But it's interesting. Let me give you another example. In that same era, there's another set from Upper Deck that is unnumbered called the Game Dated Memorable Moments set. And it wasn't a complete parallel of the complete set, but but covers about 30 cards from it. And those cards haven't grown at all in terms of value. They're actually basically flat and in some cases down from where they were 20 years ago. So a lot of how, a lot of the ratios, you, you would have assumed back in 1997 that they grow at the same rate. But what we've seen in looking back at those, looking back at those price guys and just juxtaposing them with what the current day's data is that they're not actually, they're not the same at all. They're very different. And understanding why can maybe teach us about what we should be buying now. Well, good. And I think that, like I said, your ability, to, what do you do in your uh, day job? I'm a controller for a private equity firm. That makes sense. So you're going to be able to dig into the data and try to find uh, where, where there's some value and if something's out of place. So you're, you're in the right hobby and, you're, and your assessment is probably correct. The upper deck, the, those game dated memorable moments, aren't they hard to distinguish? Yeah. You're, yeah. Great. great that, that, Especially- I, I sold some way lo- a long time ago, but they just, they were hard to distinguish. And the PMGs pop, but those memorable moments... Upper Deck does a great job in many respects, but FLIR and the sub-brands of FLIR in the late 90s ruled in terms of design and eye-catching, you know, not just scarce inserts, but beautiful. Do you think we knew it at the time? We knew it, but $1,000 was a huge amount for a card in the 90s. And, and yet, how many cases would you have to buy to find one, uh, one of those? But so, again, this is a little bit about your origin story. Were you hunting for the best of the best, the rarest of the rare back in the 90s? Or, or is this a, a later pursuit for you now that you're uh, into your career? 
It's definitely a case of when I was young, I just didn't have very much money. I came from a family that didn't have a lot. I didn't have a lot of extra spending money. I still put together a pretty cool collection for just being a kid. But not only did I not have a lot of money, but how were you going to find some of these things back in 1997 and 1998? And now, obviously, we have a million different ways of connecting with people and finding ultra uber rare items. And and that's definitely something that's come over the last 15 years or so. But Adam, I've heard from some of the origin interviews over now doing this podcast for a year and hundreds of episodes now. It's been a lot of fun and heard different stories. Tell me if you're, some of the guys that are about your age have the regret that when, if they did come across something like that back in the late nineties, they traded the scarcer version for something that was of lesser scarcity or maybe a, a quantity of something, but they traded quality for quantity. Tell me you didn't do that. I'll tell you what I did is I looked for opportunities to flip way more than I should have. That's my biggest regret in this hobby is that I've always been great at finding really cool things and, and saying, hey, look at this thing that I've got. And, and then afterwards saying, okay, I'm going to sell it for more money. My, my biggest regret is doing that over and over again, rather than keeping some of my key items, because I can tell you a story to, or two about things that I acquired that I wish that I wouldn't have let go. It's not like the stock market where you can, uh, if something's up, you just and then you can go buy it back because some of this stuff you can't buy back very easily. And uh, so I, I don't want to get into your regret stories, but <laughs> I've shared some of mine to sell anything from 40 years ago. I, I'm, I'm not so smart because anything that was uh, really good 25, 30, 40 years ago is really good now. And uh, it, it would beat any stock, not any stock market, any stock, but almost any stock. It, it's just, just fabulous. So how do you avoid burnout? One of the things that I found about people who or have been in this hobby for such a long time is most of us are pretty obsessive people. I don't know if you, would you, would you classify yourself in that group or, or, or no? I'm not obsessive. I'm compulsive. <laughs> Actually, obsessive means you're thinking about it all the time. Compulsive means if you say you're going to do it, you do it. So I'm mm -hmm. more compulsive than obsessive. I don't stew about it. I either do it or if I say I'm going to do it, I do it. But many successful people are compulsive because if you, you know, your word is your bond. If I say I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it. But the obsessive people don't sleep very well. I sleep really well. So I'm not obsessive. I mean, I'm not obsessive because my wife would definitely tell you that I sleep really well, especially when the babies are crying. But, but no, I, 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 look, I just look at my life. I, I am the sort of person where if I get into something, I stay into it. If I jump into something, it's kind of cliche to say, but if I'm, I jump in, you know, you know, feet first, that's just the way that I am. But my issue has never been burnout. My issue has always been I'm so obsessive about it and I can't leave it alone. And I think though, in answer to your question, one, one helpful piece of um, you know, information that I would give or one suggestion is I limit my collection um, by the number of items that I have. Uh, a few years ago, I, I decided to create the best 100 items in my collection and I rank them from 100 to one. And that has given me limits around how many items I want to have. And that, an, an item can be a set or an item can be a single card, but I don't let myself go too far past 100 because like you say, you can amass such a quantity, you can become really a hoarder and I don't really want to be a hoarder, I, even though maybe naturally I would be. I want to be somebody who instead has just a few things that I really like. One of the things that's interesting about your story, because I really wanted to draw out some your origin story in, in a different way, and this is different, because what you've done is you, either through discipline or focus, you've managed to not widen your focus and niche. And most collectors, and it's not necessarily the same as hoarding, but they uh, dig into an area and then they complete it or they get bored with it and then they broaden their niche. And it sounds like you haven't done that. You've stayed focused and your top 100 has given you a discipline and a rotation, even though I've heard you talk about that you actually do have some other asterisk uh, kinds of ways to hold on to things, but it made sense. And that kind of a discipline is something that's helpful for 
that other people should hear and realize that you don't have to get all the cards, but to have a collection you're proud of that's displayable and that has some cohesion. It sounds like you've done a really good job of that. You're super kind. Um, you talked to a previous guest on your podcast about about Emmett Smith cards and showing one how many cards could Emmett Smith look at of, him, of himself before he got sick of it. I have 100 items in my collection, and I could probably give they say a, a picture is worth a thousand words. I could probably give you 10,000 words on each of the items and why they're significant to me. But um, to your point, they're all related to basketball, but it covers really the history of basketball. I've got stuff from the 50s, and I've got stuff from the last couple of years. And if it's related to basketball cards, then then it's something that I'm probably going to be interested in. Adam, we could go on forever, I'm sure, but I, I've made a deal with my listeners that we're going to do 15 minutes. So let me just finish, and, and I want to get you back for uh, another episode because this is fascinating. But let me just say, your top 100, I, in effect, if, if you see my new uh, backdrop, that's part of my wall of fame. I actually have a top 1,000. And so you're not shaming me, but you're, you're showing that you're more focused than I am. On the other hand, I'm doing all the sports and, and even even quasi sports, I think. So, but I've delighted in that. And so when I get, I've got my thousand. And so when a new person pops in, I got to replace it. And so I'm going to try to have that same discipline. Well done, Adam. Thanks, listeners. I hope you got some wisdom from Adam here, the Basketball Card Podcast. And I enjoyed it. And I'm going to have Adam back. And, and I'll see you or here. I'll uh, be back with you listeners again tomorrow with another episode. So thanks again. Thanks, Adam. Be back tomorrow.